The Spin-Off Podcast Network. We believe where you live shouldn't decide your destiny and that any place can be a place of learning. So much of modern life has a handy home delivery option. Why not your education? Maybe you'll start your degree in the same space you share with your whānau or from that corner of the spare room that catches the most sun. Start your new what at the place where we're can be anywhere, online or on campus. Massey, New Zealand's leading online university. Apply now at massey.ac.nz. This episode of Conversations That Count, Ngā Korero Whaitake, discusses issues related to mental health in New Zealand, including brief references to abuse and suicide. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. On this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kirsty Ross and Jahan Casanada for a corridor about mental well-being, what works with our current approach, what it's missing, and what a refreshed approach to all things mental health could help us to collectively achieve. Dr. Ross is a senior lecturer in clinical psychology at Massey University with more than 20 years' experience in her field. Her expertise includes paediatric and family psychology. Jahan is a writer and award-winning TV journalist who's just published a book about his own battles with depression. This is not how it ends. In his book, Jahan presents the idea that we're conditioned to think about depression and mental illness in the wrong ways and suggests storytelling as a means to move forward and reclaim our own narratives. Thank you both for chatting to us today. And it's only the big stuff, the good stuff, the conversations that count. So Kirsty, when you say that psychology is for everyone, what do you mean by that in terms of how we can participate with psychology? Everybody has mental health. And I think that um, as a as a psychologist, I feel really strongly that everyone should be given the ability and the tools and the ideas about how they can support their own well-being and that of their family and whānau. And if we sort of think of things at a, at a universal community level, then if everyone has some idea about how they can maintain their well-being, then that's a really powerful tool that people can put into their own lives. I'm a really big believer in the power of family and whānau being able to support each other and then communities being able to support each other as well. So I would love it if people don't just think of psychologists as sitting in clinics and that you only get to see psychologists or hear about psychology when you're in a a severe state of distress. I'd like to be a little bit more preventative and grassroots than that. So the word psychology or psychologist is sometimes perhaps the barrier? Often one of the first things that I say to people is that the people that I work with are people just like me and oftentimes I say to people along the lines of you know there but for the grace of God go I kind of scenario that most people that I talk to are just dealing with stuff that would be very difficult for anyone to deal with. So one of the first conversations we have is seeing a psychologist doesn't mean that you're crazy and actually being distressed doesn't mean that you're crazy and actually you can be okay even when you're not okay in the sense that you're not broken, you're not damaged, you're having an experience right now that you need some support with but it doesn't have to define you and it doesn't have to kind of be all of who you are as well. 
That's interesting, I think, Jahan. If you think about how people are defined perhaps by their work and people see your work and you're outward-facing and you're public-addressing and you're very confident, it would seem. So hmm. did that make it harder for you to acknowledge that you had depression and that things were hard? For me, the complete opposite because I had spent many years doing mental health journalism and I had sat with people going through all forms of severe distress and heard about how they'd overcome those challenges. I'm 30. I grew up in the first generation in New Zealand to benefit from a reasonable level of openness and conversation around mental health. I remember being at high school when Sir John Kerwin wrote the word hope in the sand in that famous ad campaign that really opened up this conversation. I think the journey that we've been on over the last 15 years has been incredible because we've broken down some of that shame and stigma. But I also think there have been some really perverse consequences of the language and the stories that we've built around mental health. I think our language is very binary. We suggest that you're either mentally well or you're mentally unwell. We tell people to ask for help, but we know that we have a broken mental health system. We know that many of our friends and family actually don't have the ability or the insight or the tools to be able to give you the help that you need. So I think when I started to experience really severe mental distress and eventually suicidality, I bought into the idea that all I needed to do was wave a white flag and ask for help and someone would ride in on a white horse and save me, that the medical system could fix me or cure me. And I think what we learn the further we get into this journey is that mental distress, as Kirsty says, is an experience. It's something to learn to accommodate and accept and sometimes it's about living with rather than trying to erase our pain. And that to me is a totally different way of framing this conversation. So that's why you can do the job you do and be experiencing those things. Yeah, and I think for me, a word like depression has almost been rendered meaningless in our culture. We use a word like depression as an umbrella term, a kind of shorthand to describe a whole range of human experiences. The reality is we all experience mental distress in unique ways. There's no specific pathology for depression that's common to every person. And, you know, some days I get home at the end of the day and I've had conversations with people my age and I'm like, man, it's like everyone has depression or anxiety. Everyone <laughs> describes themselves as having a mood disorder. And so I think what we're seeing now is a move away from some of this language because it can be disempowering. It can make you feel, and I certainly felt like this, something's gone wrong in my brain, right, Kirsty? This is what you were talking about. I'm broken. I'm yeah. defective. It's not my environment. Me, me, me. I internalize my pain. And I think that can be a real barrier for people. So I see you nodding a lot, Kirsty. <laughs> it seems most relevant to ask you about the mental health system and if you agree that it's broken? First of all, I just want to say that there are some really, really good people working in mental health. Mm. And I think that for people who are in distress, they need to be able to access help quickly because people, when they're in distress, I've been in distress myself as a, as a young person, significant distress. And there are times where you just need someone to scoop you up and just say, I've got you, I'm going to help you. But I think that we need to have layers to the mental health system. It can't just be that you're at one end of the continuum, if you like, when you're able to access help, mm. um, which is why I think things like this are so important. And your book, Jahan, is just fabulous. I really consider that the people that I work with are the experts in their own life. You know, So I'm there to provide some expertise. But distress comes in all forms of flavours, basically. Basically, and the way that someone expresses their distress is a product of a whole range of different things from their genetics, brain chemistry, environment, culture, 
gender, a whole range of different things. So it isn't a one-size-fits-all. And one of the key things that needs to happen within a mental health system is relationships and being able to build a relationship with the person that's in front of us so that actually we really understand their particular situation and make sure that their particular goals and needs are met. It's no point if I worked with a young person who was feeling anxious in social situations and I said, right, let's have a goal where you can go to a whole lot of parties and that actually that's not something that they enjoy or that is important to them. That's the wrong goal. So a system whereby people are seen as individuals with a story to tell, that actually Mm. we have the time to really listen to that story and find out what's important to them and how they can achieve their own life goals. Living with the pain, I totally agree with you. Pain is not something that we need to avoid. Mm. In fact, it's often the avoidance of pain that causes problems. Feeling confident and competent and supported to manage pain is a really important part of daily life. Obviously we don't want people to be in extreme pain because that's that's too distressing and it's really overwhelming for people but it's a little bit like trying to chase a rainbow if you're trying to find a life without pain because that's not a great goal to have. So relationships are really key in a mental health system and making sure that we're talking to the right people at the right time. Sometimes clients will say to me, my depression or my anxiety, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, these are experiences that you have. You're a person, you have all these goals and dreams and connections and values and beliefs and sometimes these are experiences that you have but it doesn't define you it's not your identity the second wave I think you called it Jahan about actually it's great Um, I'm a little bit older than you Jahan Um, and so I grew up when I was a teenager where we didn't talk about feelings and you know these conversations were not held and that was not a good thing but holding those conversations and is is really powerful as long as people don't feel paralysed by that and hopeless actually in a, in a really perverse way as you say that actually this is what I have and therefore this is kind of my future this is my destiny this is what defines me so teasing that out is important. Yeah it's really interesting I was quite shocked someone last week said to me well you'd never get nervous and I said well that's how ridiculous. How would you know? <laughs> yeah but also how ridiculous would it be to never get nervous yeah. that's just not having a full human experience uh, but we project things onto other people I guess to say you must be like this. What I'm interested in especially when you're both talking is access because I've been shocked sometimes how hard it is to access mental health support okay if you're resourced up and if you're able to pay for a psychologist what would you say about our system and and access to, to expertise I think our system is profoundly inequitable and the nature of the help that you receive is very much dependent on a range of factors your socioeconomic status can you pay 120 bucks an hour to go and see someone are you living in the provinces in an area where there is no counselor uh, how are you treated by that system on the basis of your ability to communicate your race your cultural background you know your identity um, I was really fortunate as a working professional in Auckland, kind of in the ideal situation to be able to get the help. But I also felt that in seeing my GP, you know, I had a really great counsellor. I had a bad experience with a psychiatrist. I often felt like I wasn't being heard. But I also felt 
that there was something sitting beneath the surface of my distress that I wasn't really getting to the root of. And that's how I landed on storytelling, the concept of narrative psychology, which is what my book is about. The idea that each of us has an internal story that Mm. explains who we are, where we've come from and where we're going. And so I got really interested in, you know, as a journalist, having sat with people who had rewritten their life stories, they couldn't change what had happened to them, whether it was their sexual abuse or being in the Christchurch terror attack, but they could change their interpretation. For me, that was the game changer. It wasn't running round and round Greyland Park in the middle of the night, which was one of the things that I did try and do <laughs> um, as a way of coping with my distress. But I think we need to give people more practical tools. And so in the conversations that I'm having now, I'm able to say, look, this is a tool. It's a lens. It's a way of exploring your distress. But there isn't a silver bullet. And I think we need to move beyond that. And I like how you bring up narrative Mm. because that's central to the Māori worldview of not only mental health but spiritual health Mm. as well, which is something that comes up. Uh, I know that you support as well, Kirsty, but you're desperate to say something. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to say that I feel like we've divorced the mental from the other parts that make up a human life. And so when we diagnose and we label purely based on a list of symptoms that someone observes or develops over 14 days, what we're excluding is that person's trauma, their relationships, their identity, their values, their beliefs, their story. So Kirsty, I mean, that's been my experience, the fact that the whole person is not taken into account in our mental health system. So is it any wonder that so many people feel that they're not being heard, even when they're making the right calls and asking for help? I could not agree with you more. So I'm just, I'm going to make a little plug for psychology here because <laughs> I train in our training program. So I, I teach up and coming kind of psychologists. And one of the key things that we do is what's called a formulation or a case conceptualization. So what we've always said is that a diagnosis describes a current experience. It helps us to put a little bit of a framework around it and that's useful because some of what that does is says to someone, we understand your experience, there's a name for it, there's a body of research, there's some treatments that we know have got really good outcomes and so that's a really helpful thing. Yes if it stops there. And by that I mean that it doesn't tell me the story of the person. I am a massive believer in narrative as well, Jahan, Mm. and certainly working with children, stories are really important. But working just with human beings, stories are really important. And part of my job is to tell the story of the person. And sometimes it starts not just with their childhood, but actually their parents or their grandparents. And it goes back generations Mm. in order to be able to understand the person in front of me. And giving someone time to tell their story is just crucial. Whenever I say to someone, tell me what's brought you along here today, people start at different points, but there's a story that they need to tell me for me to really understand the whole story. And when we have a system which only gives people a short amount of time or is just interested in the diagnosis and not the story, then people feel quite rightly misunderstood and not heard. And that's a really awful feeling for people. Narratives are a really crucial part of understanding someone, and I completely agree with you. There's actually heaps of evidence behind narrative-based 
therapies, particularly for trauma. And when I say trauma, we often think of quite big traumas, but people sometimes have a series of smaller traumas which actually build on each other and have really profound effects on people. So being able to tell that story and rewrite that story and it's called reauthoring mm. is really important because it does help to change someone's feeling of what happens next, what's the next chapter. How do we do that then, Jahan? Well, I think we need a revolution. I think we need a story revolution in our mental health system. And I'd like to throw that back to Kirsty, actually, because I'm like, this stuff is game-changing. This is massive. Like, to me, what we've just talked about is not necessarily the way that many people experience the mental health system. To me, if we applied what we've just said in the last few minutes... I think we would actually restructure the entire mental health system. We would change the language around this. And for someone listening to this who's thinking, oh, is this really about semantics? No, I think the language is so important. I think it's astonishing that when someone experiences mental distress in this country, the government-funded website that we direct them to is depression.org.nz. Mm, not wellbeing.org, not hoorder.org depression.org. So before the person has even been to their GP, we are handing them a story through the language that we use that will then influence the trajectory of their journey. Is that fair, Kirsty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, again, I'm a clinical psychologist, so that's my training is, is in diagnosis. Mm. And there's power in that when it's framed right, and it's the framing of it which is really important. And so when we can kind of frame things in that way, it does help people to go, okay, so now I've understood how I've got to this point. What's the next part yes. of my story? That's an important point for you as well as you talk about migrant families mm. and how is the story different and yet sometimes makes it more challenging for people who've had an experience moving away from their home country mm. and culture. I had to go back and unpick stuff with the help of a counsellor and that's why your work is so important Kirsty. Anyone like yourself in the mental health field who can help someone actually unpack their story because we don't normally have the tools to do that right we need people like you to help us. So when I went back and looked at my early childhood experiences growing up in a migrant family in Lower Hutt straddling two cultural worlds being bullied, feeling different, feeling insecure about my body, learning that I could perform at quite a young age as a way of earning people's favour and validation and attention. This is all quite classic stuff, right? <laughs> and then going into the media, it's, the worst... It's everyone in media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the worst and best industry for this. And using those strategies. So what I, what I realised was, oh my gosh... I've been living out of the story that my five-year-old self had kind of drawn in crayon. And that story helped to protect me as a child, but served me incredibly poorly as an adult. It prevented me from taking risks. It made me socially anxious. It meant that my work played a huge role in my life because that's where my identity was coming from. And I wasn't and a whole person. Yeah. And so I've had to go back and rewrite a lot of those narratives and also, I guess, learn to have empathy for my childhood mm. self, learn to not be so hard on myself, have empathy for other people in my life who've hurt me. And I can't explain all of that work in this conversation, but the nub of that is changing the narrative. And what that's allowed me to do is move through my distress, recognise that some of the things that I've felt like isolation or grief are normal human emotions I didn't need to pathologize them. They're not symptoms of a mood disorder. And again, I just really want to emphasize and contextualize what I've said in this conversation. My line is, 
do whatever it takes to save your life. Do whatever you need to get well, whether that's taking antidepressants, counselling, exercise, if it's standing on your head every morning and drinking a cup of water, I don't care. Do whatever works for you. But at the same time, be open to delving into your past and doing the hard work of rewriting that story because ultimately it will hold you in good stead. Kia ora. And Kirsty, I wonder if sometimes you see people strip back to that five-year-old when you're talking to them. And that's one of the things that we kind of say is we've all got buttons. I know for myself I came into psychology to understand my own story through adolescence and um, through being a psychologist I also needed to understand pain that my parents carried and where that had come from in terms of my grandparents actually and that was right back to World War II and it's just lucky that I love history and I you know just love kind of delving into that but there are historical factors that come into many people's stories that's really important and oftentimes when we have a really strong emotional reaction it is that inner child if we Mm. call it that and being able to be really kind to that inner child because usually what happens is as adults we are very condemning we're really critical of our inner child and we're kind of really judgy and sort of like pull it together especially you know why are you feeling that way that's ridiculous stop it and we kind of have this very negative inner critic that actually instead of you know scooping up that inner child and saying it's okay it's all right you're doing okay and kindness and compassion to ourselves we kind of do the opposite and when I say to clients what would you say to a good friend who is experiencing this or what would you say to your own child who might be distressed they always have a different response they're always much more kinder much more compassionate much more able to take a step back but we are we're really hard on ourselves. We have very high expectations of ourselves that we're supposed to have it all together all the time. Mm. And that's where the kind of you're okay when you're not okay sort of mantra comes in. I had a client the other day who said she had a sulking day and I was like, good on you. That's really awesome that you were able to do that for yourself um, because that was just what they needed to do. We don't have to be happy all the time. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you can't necessarily do what you have to do on a daily basis. Yes, and such a great point about happiness, because I think this is the whole problem. We live in a culture that tells us that we're entitled to have a default level of comfort and contentment and happiness. And I have come to the conclusion that so much of our distress is the product of our own expectations not being met. It's about the way that we frame the nature of life. We live in a largely comfortable Western culture, even though many people in this country live in different difficult circumstances and struggle. But the reality is suffering is part of the human experience and we're deluding ourselves if we think that shouldn't be applicable to us. But it is on Instagram, everything's perfect. <laughs> and we, Yeah, totally, and we compare our lives to other people. So for me, one of the things that I've had to wrap my head around, and actually my counsellor said this to me quite early on, you know, I was talking about how I was not happy and it was a Saturday morning and he said, well, rather than trying to have a happy weekend, what if you tried to have a meaningful weekend? What would it look like to try and do things that are meaningful to you? So to me, storytelling is the process of meaning making and the amazing thing that happens when you recognize that you're the author of your own story is that you have the power to make whatever meanings you want out of the events that take place in your life even the things that you can't change
you can't change historically mm. and intergenerationally. Mamai that has existed, and sometimes it's mamai, it's pain from being disconnected from your culture. I know that Mark and Diane Kopua do Mahiatua, where they have storytelling that really brings out our origin stories and how that can relate to the stories that we are struggling with currently. So I guess one of the challenges we have as Māori that I see is that the understanding that you'll have different energy days, that you have different levels of sadness and happiness and that there is a balance to things is all written in our maramataka. It's very much held in our culture and yet we haven't been allowed to actually express that and receive the benefits of that. But Kirsty, you know now we have, thank goodness, Sir Mason Jury and the Whare Tapafa model, which helps us. Absolutely. I mean, what a gift. Mm. What a gift to people, but what a gift to psychology as well. When I started training, we didn't have a lot of input into culturally appropriate models of well-being. But the idea of spirituality was kind of considered something that we didn't really have the ability or the competency to go near and so we would just say to people go and talk to your spiritual advisor but now the understanding we all have spirituality we all have meaning and values and beliefs and living a meaningful valued life is really important for people and a sense of connection to the things that are important to you and to other people but even that varies for some people as well and that's okay but spirituality there's a whole range of different techniques I suppose in psychology now it's called positive psychology which is kind of an interesting framework around it doing things like having gratitude you know engaging in gratitude and thinking about the things that you can feel grateful in your life but also things like altruism Mm. doing things for Mm. other people which is about meaning making and about being able to take a step out of your own head sometimes in your own head space and just kind of focus on other people in front of you and there's so many ways that we can do that that not only help us feel like we're contributing to our communities or to our families or to people that we care about but help us to feel good about ourselves as well so Te Whare Tapawha encompasses different elements of the whare, so the different walls of the whare, which are about strength and well-being. So tinana, wairua, hinenaro and fano. So your physical well-being, your spiritual well-being, your connections with family and people that are important to you, and obviously your emotional well-being as well. And they're not separate things, they're intertwined mm. as well. So when you go for a walk with your kids and you're out in nature and you feel that you're feeding your soul but you're also actually it uplifts your mood you're connecting with your kids you're out in nature you're moving your body that's te whare tapawha kind of in action really and when we talk to people making sure that they look after their physical selves is often something people don't think about very much but emotional work you'll know this Jahan is hard work and actually you need physical strength to do that because it is it's physically draining to be able to work through some of the stuff and unpick some stuff and if you're not sleeping well and eating well and moving your body and that sort of thing then that's difficult for people to actually have the energy to do what they need to do Mm. and I like that Te Whare Tapawha, because we visualise a house, it helps us picture balance. And you can picture one wall falling down a little bit, so of course the whole whare is going to fall down a little bit. And it's a form of what I'd call decolonising mental health, but mm. 
that's also impactful for migrant communities as well because the colonizer western view yes. is something that you're saying has contributed to how hard you've had to work to I think this? I mean I was born in New Zealand and so I have the comfort I guess of being very at home in this culture in one sense but also the sense that this is in a weird way, not my home. And that's an experience that I think Mm. many people will be able to understand. For me, I think I spent a lot of time trying to fix the mental wall and doing that with my own strength. And again, living in a Western culture where conversations around spirituality have, I wouldn't say been taboo, but they've certainly been uncomfortable. I grew up in a Christian family and my faith has been a part of my life. That is something that I've really drawn on. I know that other people have different views and experiences, but as Kirsty says, we all have a set of beliefs and values that explains our place in the world, and we need to reconnect with that in order to be able to ground ourselves. I like how you said, uh, let's not go to a site that says depression.org. <laughs> what are some other active changes that you can see at a systemic level that would be helpful? I would like to see the role of narrative and the role of story play an even greater role in, in this conversation. The book that I've written is my attempt to try and give people some tools to recognise the fact that they are the author of their own life story. I think that's something that many people just don't even understand because they haven't been exposed to it. And I would also like to see investment in our mental health workforce. We are on one hand telling people to access these services, but we actually don't have enough people like Kirsty doing this awesome work, and I really hope that our government does that in this next term. So, Kirsty, we're just planning to completely overwork you. Does that sound <laughs> fine? <laughs> I love doing things like this for that reason, and that is about making sure that psychology is an everyday conversation and actually that if a friend comes and says I'm feeling down there's not a sort of a knee-jerk reaction oh no you've sort of got depression but actually do you want to go for a walk do you want to just sit together for a while let's think of something that actually helps you to be able to sit down and talk about that connection and yes there will be times people need to see mental health professionals and that needs to be accessible and we need a really well-trained workforce absolutely but there's so much power and the way that we talk to each other and you know even concepts like resilience you know sometimes you'll hear someone say oh they're so resilient as if it's somehow inside of us (laughs) because it's not actually and resilience actually comes from getting through tough stuff and realizing you can cope with it and feeling that on our fridge at home we've got a little magnet which talks about a bird sitting on a branch is not afraid of the branch breaking because they have faith in their wings and that's something I've always talked to my kids Mm. about is build up confidence in yourself and your ability to cope and if you're struggling then where's your safety net who are the people that you can lean on for a while but actually we need to get away from this idea that you either have something or you don't because that's not human experience people aren't strong or weak even strong people feel weak sometimes. I consider myself a strong people, but boy, do I need to lean on people sometimes and I have moments of real vulnerability. And that doesn't mean anything about me other than I'm a human being. And so, you know, concepts like resilience and so on, I think we need to tease those out a bit more as well because the languaging is so important in terms of people's sense of themselves, but what's okay to ask for help about or what's okay to lean on people for and not waiting until it's, kind of really, really big, but actually just being able to be vulnerable and not having that have to have a word or a term or a framework around it other than I'm just having one of those days and I I need some support. You talk about relying on people, Kirsty. One of the things that I really struggled with was 
I did reach out to people, particularly close friends, and I invited them into this journey that I was on and said, look, I needed a, a network, a, a system of people around me to help. And, you know, you quickly learn that some people will show up for you, some people won't, some people don't get it, some people say the wrong thing, some people don't know what to do. And there was one friend, my best mate, who stuck by me through that process, and my distress ultimately took a toll on him. And that was really the wake-up call for me, that I needed to take more responsibility because I didn't want to pass my distress on to someone else. He's allowed me to share that story in the book, and the reason that I do that is because I think often we overlook the burden on our friends and family, the people that are around us. And I just want to emphasize for anyone listening to this who is supporting someone who's going through distress, I would say your needs matter. Just because you're the person that's caring, that doesn't mean that you have to be bulletproof. And secondly, you cannot pour from an empty cup. So if you're going to be supporting someone on this journey, you actually need to be healthy and you need to have outlets for your own needs as well. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also think of, say, a single parent Mm. trying to support a teenager who's going through this and it's very hard to fill their own cup. So do you have insight there, Kirsty, of how, as parents, we can support our kids and also be okay ourselves? Pairing it right back, we need to understand that, you know, there's, again, Instagram, you know, the social media kind of idea that you're always lovingly looking at your children, enjoying every moment of parenting is just, it's so flawed and it's so wrong. I have two teenagers whom I absolutely adore, but boy, there's days where I've thought, how many days you know, before you leave home? <laughs> and sorry, kids, but I have to say that because I love them dearly, but we're human beings as well. It can't just be self-sacrifice all the time. Because we're teaching them martyrism if we do do that. And you couldn't be more right. Actually, my kids call them mum's life lessons. And there are moments which I think of as teachable moments. When I say to my kids, you know, I'm going to go and have dinner with my friends. That's actually modelling something that's really important to me. And so that's a life lesson that kids watch all the time. It's not do as I say, it's do as I do. And so when we can think about what type of adults do we want our kids to be, and that's what we need to model, that's really important. So for people who are supporting someone and they may not have a great number of resources to draw on, they might be single parents, taking moments. I think sometimes we sort of think of self-care as like a weekend away, but it could just be, I'm going to sit down and watch Netflix for an hour. I'm just in the next room. I'm here if you need me, but actually I'm just going to take some time for myself or I'm going to go for a walk after dinner. I just need some time to myself. It's not a rejection. It's actually modeling. I need to fill my cup. I need to look after myself. And I hope that you will do that for you as well. So Parenting is hard work, and if you don't put your own oxygen mask on first, that kind of idea. See, it's funny. When I watch that on the plane, I'm always like, there's no way that I would put mine on before the kid. (laughs) (laughs) But I would also say from the perspective of someone who's been through severe distress, the most useful thing that anyone can do is show up. Mm. Consistency Mm. was all I needed. I didn't need you to fix me. I knew that you're not an expert. That's okay. And I think often people feel the burden of what can I do? How can Mm. I fix this person? How can I rescue them? And actually the most useful thing that you can do is just be there and be a consistent presence, be able to be someone that can be counted on. As simple as that. Can I just ask you finally, Jahan, to tell us what it sounds like when you talk kindly to the five-year-old in your head? Well, I... 
almost do that out loud. The image that my counsellor gave me once was, imagine a little version of you, you're putting your arms around that child and you're saying, actually, and I've had to do it this week, you haven't done anything wrong in this situation. This conflict has arisen. It's not your fault. You're safe. You're okay. It's almost as if a parent would talk to a child. We can talk to ourselves like that. It's a beautiful thought, and I really hope that it helps someone. I believe that too. Thank you both for this really important and impactful korero that we've had today. A conversation that counts. Thanks, Stacey. Thank you. If you need help or you're looking for someone to talk to, you can find a short list of services and helplines in the episode description. You've been listening to Conversations That Can't, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by Massey University and The Spin-Off. Hosted by me, Stacey Morrison. Produced by Jane Yee and Matthew McCauley, with music by Grayson Gilmore. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.